0: So a few years ago, my friend Tony, Tony is a pastor and a theologian. He lives in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, and a few years ago, he traveled with his family from Minnesota down to Alexandria. He was spending a week at the church where I was on staff. He was going to be our, he was, our scholar in residence. Meaning that he did a few evening talks and his topic was why the United Methodist Church is the worst denomination in modern-day history. (laughs) It was a topic given to him by Bishop Will Willimon, and we all had a big laugh when Tony had to talk about that. But he also preached on Sunday morning. Now, you know, this pastors only work one day a week, so he had the whole week to himself while he was in D.C. with his wife and his children. And they went to all of the sites in D.C. that folks like us who live here avoid during the summer months. They went to the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial. They went to as many Smithsonian museums as they could squeeze in. And they also visited Mount Vernon. And after seeing all of the sites and eating at all of the places one is supposed to eat when they are in D.C., Tony preached on Sunday morning. Tony opened his sermon by remarking that each site his family visited painted its subject in the most flattering light, more positively than history books would portray the subject. Now you need to know Tony's visit was in 2011, well before many historical sites around here, like Mount Vernon, began to address the harm done at the hands of the celebrated saints of our nation. In the stories told at each historic site, Tony said it seemed that only part of the story was being told. And that part of of the story that was being told was not entirely accurate. For ten chapters, now we're in chapter 11, Paul has been going on and on and on. About the grace of God, the judgment of God, and salvation. It's ten chapters of humanity's deserving of divine judgment, and ten chapters of humanity receiving the grace of God instead of the judgment deserved, all because of who God is and not because of who we are and the stories that we tell ourselves. What about our family, our fellow Jews, someone asks Paul. And while we're talking about the Jews, what about the Gentiles? They're not even part of our covenant, someone else asks Paul. What about them? Whenever we ask these questions in theological terms, we always end up with them and us. Paul responds to these questions with his own question. Has God rejected God's own people? No. God did not even reject Paul. After Paul persecuted the church, on the road to Damascus, when Paul was going to hunt out Christians, and he was knocked off his horse, he received grace instead of judgment. The grace of God is more amazing than any of us can imagine. And Paul writes that God's grace finds room For even the Gentiles, for those who were outside of the original covenant between God and Abraham and for us today that's really good news (laughs) there's even room for those who have turned away from God if God can save us Paul writes, God can save anybody, even when faced with disobedience when we turn away from God and our love fails there is the occasion for grace through God Like Paul, falling off his horse, when we realize the grandness of the grace of God, our theological socks are knocked off. And this doesn't have to happen during a mountaintop religious experience. Maybe, but probably not likely, it could happen during a sermon. Perhaps during the singing of a hymn. Or maybe when you prayed this morning as the sun was rising. Paul realizes that the grandness of the grace of God is bigger than he had originally realized because God's grace always goes a step further than we ourselves are willing to go. To realize that God loves Jews and Gentiles and that God is kind to the selfish and the ungrateful can move us to shout for joy. Which is how Paul concludes chapter 11. He writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God! How unsearchable are God's judgments and his and inscrutable God's ways. Friends, the grace of God is, is constant throughout our holy scriptures and in Christ's own ministry. Still, we sometimes attempt to paint Christ. Or even the grace of God in our own image. We try to use grace as a prop in our own story rather than allowing God's grace to stand at the center of who we are and everything that we do. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? Who are these who do these people hearing me teach? and preach, say that I am. The disciples replied that some say that he was John the Baptist, or the prophet Elijah, or even Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Jesus, some say that you are this, or you are that, projecting their expectations of the grace of God upon you, and in turn, attempt to rewrite the story of God's grace through what they thought they knew. Christ must be this Or that and not both Christ must be a teacher or a miracle worker or a prophet so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are brothers and sisters I want you to understand a mystery Paul writes God is bigger than any boundary we can attempt to build The grace of God is more expansive and more inclusive than the stories we tell ourselves. If it were left to us, we will end up defining God based on what we know. Or worse, on the story that we are trying to tell rather than on who God is. And our God is a God who chooses love above all else. Love for Israel. Love for us Gentiles. Love for sinners, and love for you all saints. Half of my family, half of my family hails from the Appalachian Mountains, Williamsburg, West Virginia, in the heart of Greenbrier County, West Virginia. And when I mean heart, I mean drive up this windy road, get to the last stop sign and keep going. I remember as a child, sitting in front of my grandfather's garage, he had the only like, car repair shop, tractor engine repair shop in town. And during the summer, cars, minivans packed with kids and suitcases would come by, wanting to know where the colonial um, exhibits were. (laughs) My grandfather would graciously, graciously tell them that they needed to turn around, go back to Lewisburg, stay the night in a hotel, and then in the morning drive another six hours east, and they would find the colonial attractions. (laughs) When the book-turned-movie Hillbilly Elegy came out, and it painted the entire region of Appalachia with stereotypes and generalizations, I was frustrated, to say the least. As we say in my house, I may have said all of the bad words. The story told by author turned politician J.D. Vance blurred the lines between personal memoir and sociological analysis. While it was fascinating and entertaining, the, to- the story told by Vance lacked reliability in its conclusions, because only one part of the story was being told. And yet, that story was used to paint an entire region, an entire group of people with a broad brush. That's a common theme throughout our American story. In response to Vance's book, Elizabeth Catt wrote, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And she makes the point that any region or group of people is not monolithic. And that in the case of the Appalachian Mountains, it's not a backwards or homogeneous place. Instead, it's a diverse region. Like all of the regions. Like all of us. Diverse and rich in history and culture. After Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say Christ is. If we were to ask this question today, what would we say? I know some might say that Jesus is a national virtue that we should hold on to. Some might say he's a source of inspiration, a savior, a grace dealer, a teacher to help keep our kids in line. That's typical of us, isn't it? given the chance to talk about the grace of God and one of our natural tendencies is to put Jesus into a box. And when we put Jesus into a box, we tend to speculate about who's in the box with Jesus and who's definitely outside of the box. Again, us and them. Only part of the story. If following Jesus means that we are saved, if making Christ's story our story, then there has to be someone on the outside, right? Yet, the grace of God tells us that we are not the stories we attempt to tell, uh, tell ourselves or create for other people to get to know us. And that Christ doesn't fit into any box that we want him to fit into. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the grace that we bestow upon ourselves cheap grace because in bestowing this upon ourselves, we inevitably create God in our own image. Instead, Bonhoeffer argues that grace is costly. Costly grace, he writes, confronts us with a gracious call to follow Christ. It comes with a word of forgiveness to the broken in spirit and the contrite heart. God has made a new covenant with Israel. And Paul argues that the gospel's good news does not undo the grace present in God's covenant with Israel. The good news of Christ does not undo God's faithfulness and steadfast love for Israel. And at the same time, at the same time, God has saved all through Christ and is making all of creation new. Both can be true. The church can hold on to both of those things because God is big enough. The grace of God is grand enough to live in both of those statements. One does not make the other untrue. Both are an example of how grand and gracious God is. So friends, there are going to be times when we try to paint ourselves in a light that is more positive, more flattering, than the story of us really is. But what happens is the grace of God steps into our lives, whether we like it or not, and doesn't paint us in an even better light. Rather, the grace of God takes those things within us that we don't want to share, that we don't want other people to know about, and God has taken them head-on in Christ, head-on so that we can be the recipients of the grand mercy, forgiveness, and forgiveness and salvation of God. Friends, the grace of God is God's. Let us give it back to God so that God can be God and we can be God's people. Amen.